We are beginning a new series of talks today. Uh, we're beginning to examine what is it that God would have us to pray about His church. And a little bit later, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer that God would make us holy. So let me ask you now, and then I'm going to come back to the question a little bit later. Do you want to be holy? So let me come back to that in a minute. Uh, just to kind of give you some context about how all of this developed. Um, some of you will remember a few weeks ago that I kind of polled you, took a survey of you, and said, uh, if you could only pray one prayer for the church of Jesus Christ, what would that be? And I asked you to kind of prayerfully think about that, and dozens and dozens of you responded over the course of two Sundays to that. And the reason that I did that is because I had begun to sense that God wanted us to be more of a praying church. And I said to the Lord, so um, how do you want us to get at that, and, and what is it that you want us to be praying about? And he said, um, and, I, and again, this was not an audible exchange for those of you that don't know me, uh, it seemed as if he was making a communication to my thoughts at my heart that uh, I want you to just ask the church. Let me begin to speak into their lives about it. And so over the course of two Sundays, I asked you, if you can only, just to bring a little focus to it, I said, if you can only pray one prayer for the church, what would that be? And uh, as I began to look through all of your responses, and they were varied uh, in the way that they were stated, but uh, five issues kept popping up. And it seemed like that's what God was saying to us through you that he wants us to focus on so that we better join him in praying for his church. And this is kind of a dual track thing. We're going to be praying for the church, capital C, all the believers of Jesus Christ around the globe. But we're also going to be especially praying for a church, a local congregation right here that gathers in this place called Meadowbrook. Because we have done the nomadic thing for 18 years and gathered for worship in school buildings, we know, right? The church is not a building. So we're not praying for buildings all over America or all over the world. We're praying for collective bodies of Christ followers that they might become his people the way that he desires us to be. You with me? So today we're praying, God make us holy. And I'll ask you again, would you really like for him to make you holy? And if you're not too quick to respond to that... There may be a couple of good reasons. What do you think about when you think about holiness? Perhaps you have religious figures that come to your mind when you think about holiness. Maybe you think about the late Mother Teresa. Maybe you think about the world-renowned evangelist Billy Graham. Some other such mammoth figure. And if that's what comes to your mind when you think about holiness then basically that's unattainable to you, right? Because you're thinking, I'm not moving to Calcutta. I'm not going to serve dying people that are, you know, uh, dying of various diseases on the streets of Calcutta. And I am not speaking in stadiums to millions of people around the globe. I'm no evangelist, all that kind of thing. So in that sense, it seems a little unattainable to you. But there are others of us. We have other images that come to our mind when we think about holiness. For some, it is synonymous with 
holier than thou. And so when we think of holiness, we think about people who practice their faith in rather obnoxious ways and uh, come off a little uppity, superior, condescending. That index finger seems to wag, you know, with some frequency as they're trying to tell us how to live more like they live. And so in that sense, holiness is undesirable. And so if I ask you, would you pray that God make us more holy, and if in your mind it's either unattainable or undesirable, we ain't getting nowhere, right? Uh, you might be polite enough to bow your head or even to verbalize some things, but if you are double-minded about it, if you are internally conflicted about it, and like, eh, I might want it, but I don't, then that is not the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is this conviction, this state of being convinced, God wants this, it's right, it's good, i got to have it. Oh, God, make us, make me holy. And so let's try to get at that. What is it? How do we get there? Who knows who that is? Yes, Charlton Heston. Some of you thought it was Moses. No, it's Charlton Heston, an actor. And he's playing Moses. Very good. Okay. All the nuances out of the way. So uh, what's in Moses' right hand? The rod, staff, stick, whatever. So uh, if you've seen that movie, The Ten Commandments, and if you haven't, that's your homework. You, you really need to see that because it's an awesome, historic, epic kind of film. Um, but we're reminded in the story of Moses that uh, after he had left Egypt as a prince in Egypt and gone out to Midian and was in exile and running away and all this kind of stuff, uh, he becomes a, a tender or a herder of animals, right? He's got flocks, he's got herds, and he you know, crafts this big stick, this rod, to help him do his work as a herdsman. On one occasion, he is captivated by a sight that he sees on the hillside, and he draws closer, and it's a burning bush that's not being consumed, and he has this encounter with God, and God basically says, I'm calling you, I'm tapping you to go back to Egypt and set my people free. And so you know he goes back a little reluctantly and engages the king, basically, of the world, the most powerful nation of the world at that time, Pharaoh, and says, uh, our God uh, wants you to let his people go. And, of course, that was the backbone of their entire economy, and Egypt and Pharaoh was not about to let the people go. And so a series of contests between God and the little g gods of Egypt began to ensue. And you'll remember that the rod of Moses took kind of a central piece to all that, right? And so in one uh, of those battles, uh, Moses throws his rod down on the ground, and it becomes a snake. Uh, and if you don't know the whole story, read in the Bible or get the movie. Okay? And then on another occasion, he goes out and he touches his rod to the Nile River and it becomes blood. All right. And then uh, once Pharaoh begins to think he is going to let the people go and, and they begin to exit or exodus, he changes his mind and he begins to pursue them and he has them pinned up against the Red Sea, right? And uh, God tells Moses to hold his rod over the waters, over the sea, and those waters parted. Yes. 
And they were able, so on and on we go. After a while, this stick of Moses became known as the rod of God. That was still in Moses' hand. It was still something that Moses used all the time. But it was now called the rod of God because it was something that God kept using. And in that sense, that stick became holy. That's what holy is. Holy is anyone or anything that has been set aside for the use of God. A man of God, a woman of God, is a person that has set their life aside for God. This gathering place is a holy place because we have set it aside for the use of God. For those of you that are married, if you got married in a sacred ceremony where you made vows, not just to one another, but you made vows to God, then you entered the state of holy matrimony. That means your marriage is not for you or for your children or for society, although all will benefit, but your marriage is for God. For His purposes, to honor Him, to, to bless Him, to glorify Him, to exalt Him. Remember when you said, I do? Okay. So, here's what the Scriptures say to us about holiness. Jesus prayed for us to become holy. Now, if you don't know John 17, that's your secondary homework for the week. Freshly read John 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Well, sometimes we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, the one that goes, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., but that's really more of the model prayer. That's a prayer he was teaching us to pray. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. And if you're not acquainted with it, get acquainted with it. And you'll see uh, central to all that Jesus is praying about in his final prayer for us in this world was, Make them holy, Father. Make them holy. And then we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus sacrificially loved us so that we would become holy. There's purpose to His loving us, and it's so that we are sanctified, which means to make holy. The Apostle Paul declared that we were predestined before the forming of this world, before the creation of this universe, before anything existed besides God. It was in God's mind that you, that I, would be holy. You on that one for a while. And then in Hebrews 12, 14, it's clarified that only the holy will see God, will experience God, will encounter God. And so now I ask you again, would you like to be holy? Man, I've got my work cut out for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you again a little bit later. All right? So we're looking at Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 6 is preceded by what? Romans 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. 
And so for Romans 6 to fully make sense, you've got to be a little acquainted with Romans 1 through 5 because they all build on one another. And Paul makes this incredible case for the life of Christ and what he has accomplished for us in his sinless, sacrificial, atoning death on our behalf. Having grappled with all of that in five chapters, he then comes to some conclusions that we're looking at in chapter 6. And I don't have time today to take you through all five chapters, so I'm taking you right to the conclusion of some things. And if it doesn't make full sense, part of it's my fault, but the rest of it is you'll want to go back and read Romans 1 through 5. Man, you're loading us up with homework. I know, but you're going on a camp out. Take your Bible. you got things to read. Okay. So we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. In the same way, well, that clues you that you're in the middle of a conversation. In, In what way? In the same way. Same way as what? All that I've just been talking about, Paul would say. In that same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under law, but under grace. And if you knew what that meant, you'd have just been shouting. You are not under law, but under grace. Keep your Bible open, because I'm going to keep referring to things that you're going to want to look down on the page and maybe make some kind of notation about for yourself, all right? Let's talk about what Paul just said to us. First of all, he says, you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. That is to say, if you are a Christ follower, if you've given your heart to Christ and you say, I believe you're God, I believe you're Lord, I believe you're Savior, and I give myself to you, I will follow you all the days of my life with a whole heart. In other words, saved, as that often is referred to as born again. Then Paul says, you are now dead to sin, alive to Christ. And he uses uh, a word to help you think that way. In the NIV I just read, said, consider yourselves dead. Some other versions say, reckon yourselves dead. I love that old word. Other versions say, think, understand yourself to be dead, to sin, alive to Christ. What in the world does that mean? doesn't matter what word you're using. I'm not sure I get that, you're thinking. Well, it means this. If you are married, for example... On the day that you said, I do, at that very same moment you said, I don't, to every other person in the world. When you said, I do, to your bride or to your groom, you said, I don't, to every other single person in the world. And so... Uh, To use that analogy, Paul would say it like this, Consider yourselves then dead to single life and alive to married life. And all the married people said, Man, 
Got a lot of work to do today. Okay, so to consider yourself dead to single life means you no longer think like a single person. You no longer act like a single person. You no longer conduct yourself like a single person. You start living like a single person when you're a married person, you get in a mess. So consider yourself dead to that. That's my past. I no longer live like a single person. I now live like a married person. And all that that affords me. Now, we do this all the time, every day, with all kinds of things, all kinds of arenas in our life. We die to one thing so that we can live to another. Paul said you have died to an old way of life. The life that was marked by sin, meaning that I'll do whatever I want to do, or I'll do things that are not in concert or in harmony with God. I died to that so that I now live to Christ. He goes on to say in the second place, it's at this point, you're in a war. You're in a battle. Because you have left one company... Say goodbye to it, and you have come alive to and joined another whole company or battalion or army, whatever you want to call it. You have left sin. You have joined up with God through Christ. And so that means everything that is a part of you now is joined up with God through Christ, and you belong to Him. The sin encampment has not given up on you. You know that? Hello, do you know that? Okay, I, I just got to, okay. So, the, the sin encampment is going to continue to pursue you even though you're, in, you're on a new team. You're in a new battalion. Okay? And one of the strategies of sin, which is not just an act or a behavior, not just our nature, but it's like this entity. One of the strategies of sin is to pursue you and to capture parts of you. Okay? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, that's how sin approaches your life. One piece, one bite at a time. Uh, because usually sin is so overtly obvious, we don't uh, respond to it if it's like all-encompassing. Sometimes we take that plunge. But most of the time, sin has to take us a bite at a time, a piece at a time. And here Paul is saying uh, one of those ways is that sin will attack your desires. Okay? So, desires are good, God-given things. Right? God has given us the desire to eat. And because of that, every time I feel that desire, we call it hunger, I will fuel my body. I will take in nourishment so that this body has the wherewithal to do what this body's created to do. Now, if... Sin somehow approaches my life and encroaches my life and is able to seize hold of my desires and influence my desires, then what God has given to me as a good desire can be perverted and become a bad desire. So, for example, instead of feeling a desire to eat, to fuel my body and to sustain my life, I may be anxious. I may be worried, I may be fretful, I may be just in inner turmoil, and I will deal with all that 
by eating. And I will soothe myself with some chocolate and some ice cream. You've heard about these things, right? <laughs> and I will comfort myself with salty snacks uh, along with sweet snacks. Ooh, there's enough sweet. Let me get some more salty. Ooh, enough salty. Let me get some sweet. And I'm just back and forth taking care of my upset feelings. And that, friend, is sin. Not because it's just so wicked, but because it's not the way God designed that appetite or that desire. And so you are looking to fulfill a God-given desire in God-illicit or God-forbidden ways. You follow me? Now, what's the big problem about that? Well, see, God knows that you have stress. He knows you have anxieties. He knows you have fears. And that's why He has said, here's how you handle that. Cast your fears on me. Whenever you get anxious and worrisome, I want you to turn your heart and turn your thoughts toward me and allow me to touch your life, empower your life, encourage your life, speak into your life, and address all the inner turmoil in your life. And when you choose to do that with food instead of with God's Spirit and presence, you have short-circuited your relationship with Him, which is sin. And so Paul says, don't let your desires be captured by sin. It's a military strategic move on your part in this battle because you've switched sides. Okay? If I succumb to food as a sin, it leads to gluttony, to bulimia, to anorexia. We could talk about so many problematic things that happen because I responded to my desire for food in an illicit, illegitimate kind of way. Now, we could make a whole list of things, right? We could talk about alcohol. You know, there is no biblical prohibition about having a beer. However, if I choose to have a beer, not just to quench a thirst, but because I've had this incredibly bruising day, and I want to take the edge off of my stress, and I want to be able to relax myself and all that, and so I'm trying to chemically address stuff that God wants me to engage Him about, then I have abused alcohol, or caffeine, or sugar drinks, or whatever, and they become sin. And it can lead to alcoholism, it can lead to caffeine addiction, it can lead to... The list can go on and on. What if I do the same thing with the accumulation of money and with stuff? God wants us to accumulate things, to use things. We become stewards of them. But if I go crazy about accumulating money or accumulating stuff, and I begin to identify myself with that, I begin to declare my status with that, if I try to soothe myself with a shopping uh, trip or the purchasing of stuff, uh, you know, acquiring of stuff, then it leads to greed. It leads to envy. I can't believe he got that. I don't have that. Jealousy. Selfishness. On and on we could go. And so, you know, we're over here trying to go, Oh God, help me not be so greedy. Oh God, help me not be so selfish. Oh God, help me not eat so much. That is a symptom of the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is unholiness. Because if we were holy, 
our life would be in his hand for his use and for his purpose and he would be setting us free from the illicit use of desires what about sexuality I mean if there's anything that's gone crazy in our world today it's sexuality it is a good God-given gift that God wants us to fully embrace and enjoy within the confines and context of a lifetime committed monogamous marriage. But if I began to engage all that and express all that in illegitimate, illicit ways, it leads to objectifying people, lusting, fornication, adultery, addictions, we could go on and on. I mean, this our, our country especially is just being ravaged right now by that desire gone crazy. And it's not like God is some great prude in the sky saying, No, sex. <laughs> He's saying, Yes, sex. Within the parameters that I've given you that will bless you. So, Paul is saying to us, when you begin to do life as God invites you and calls you to do life with Him, you switch sides. You leave the world of Christlessness and sin, and you go to Christfulness and holiness. You die to one, you come alive to the other. You guard your heart, you guard your desires so that the enemy cannot take them captive and begin to plunder your life by... Uh, Tempting your desires in crazy ways and thereby using your body parts as weapons. Weapons. Now, the text that we just read, if you're looking at it, says, Don't let the members of your body be instruments of unrighteousness. Rather, let the members of your body be instruments of righteousness. What that is to say is, your body parts can be used as weapons for unrighteousness or weapons of righteousness. And so in this battle, you make sure that you guard your desires, you guard your heart, and you don't allow your body parts to be used as weapons against God. You allow them to be used as weapons for God. With me? So for example... God has given me eyes. They are part of my body. They can be powerful weapons for God to see what's going on in this world and to uh, identify need, to identify hurt, to care, to have compassion. And in that case, my eyes are being used as weapons of grace, weapons of hope, weapons of righteousness. Or I can use my eyes... For envy, for greed, for lust, for vengeful kinds of things. And at that point, they've become weapons of unrighteousness. The same thing can happen with my hands. I can use my hands to touch people for edification, for blessing, for, for stirring, for comfort. Or I can use my hands to brutalize, to hurt, to wound. I can use my tongue. James in the New Testament says one of the most powerful weapons in our body. I can use my tongue to edify, to bless, to build up, to encourage, to inspire. Or I can use my tongue to tear you down, to condescend you, to make you feel lower than dirt. Very powerful weapon. 
And so when we say, Lord, make us holy, we're saying, so hold our lives that we become instruments, we become weapons of your goodness, of your grace, of your righteousness, of all that you want to do in this world, rather than agents of sin. Now, if you've been tracking with me to this point, there's a part of that that sounds so exciting and inviting, maybe even a little bit inspiring and stirring, and you're going, yes, that's what I want. But then right after that, there's maybe another thought that goes, I ain't never getting there. How in the world does that happen? So here's the good news. You can't get there. Oh, excuse me, that's the bad news. But it is the good news. You can't get there. But Christ can has and will impute it to you. That's the good news. You can't. He can. And holiness is a matter of letting Him. Cooperating with that. Just say no. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Because just say no means that I will enact my will and I will muster up my strength, my courage, my wherewithal, and I will say no to that temptation, no to that desire, and so on. And that works a little bit for a while, but you and I cannot address every desire we've got every day of every week, of every month, of every year, all of a lifetime successfully. We can't do it. So just say no tells us we don't want to be under the law. Because the law not only shows us what's right and what's wrong, but shows us how wrong we have messed up the right. The law It has been given to us by God not only to reveal to us what's right and what's wrong, but to reveal to us our need for grace. And so Paul gives us good news and says, you're not under that law. It's been a a, a teacher to you. It's been an instructor to you. It shows you what's right and wrong, and it shows you how inadequate and incapable you are to keep that right and wrong. But there's grace. So saying no to sin and yes to Christ is living under grace. And it works this way. The law has to be kept. That's the way God's designed it all. And so because we couldn't, He came. And He perfectly lived a human life sinlessly completely encountering every kind of scenario and every kind of temptation, every kind of assault on His desires that you and I have faced without sin. And then died on our behalf a sacrificial and atoning death 
so that He could then, as a righteous one, give us His righteousness, impute it to us, as He took our sinfulness. Exchange. That's why all paths don't lead to God. That's why there's one path, because there's only one that's done the exchange for us. There's only one that paid the price for us. Ephesians 2 tells us, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. You, you go, well, how, how do I appropriate this grace? How do I have this righteousness imputed to me? The Bible says from beginning to end, it's by faith. You have to believe that's the way it is and then kind of like bet your life on that. Stake your life on that. That there are no uh, list of things that you can accomplish as was being referenced a moment ago. There's no gold, not enough gold medals in the world that you can make to get this thing done. It's a simple act of your believing it's the way the Bible has told us that it is. But it's a grace gift. So we're saved by His grace when we believe in that. You're saved by grace through your faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. So if you believe that, and if you have a life that's open to the grace of God coming upon you, then you want Stay that way, live that way, be in that state day by day, which is holy. By Christ's sacrifice, God considers Jesus to be sinful, though He's righteous. And by our faith in Christ, God considers us to be righteous, though we are sinful. What a remarkable gift. So what do we do about that? Well, I wholeheartedly recommend that you receive Christ today if you haven't already. Because friends, you are not going to get to the place of full and meaningful life. Jesus said abundant life. You're never going to get there outside of Christ. And if you want to continue to scratch and claw and climb and achieve and acquire and all this kind of stuff, you know, we're still going to love you. We're still going to care about you. We still want to, you know, be in proximity to your life and embrace your life. But friend, you're not going to get there unless you choose to die the former way and come alive the new way. See, it's, it's a once and for all thing. But it's also a day-by-day -day thing. I made this step when I was 15 years of age. Where I said, I believe that the gospel is true and that Jesus is my Savior and that I need Him more than I need breath. And I gave my heart to Him at the age of 15. At the age of 15. And I have been from that point to this in day-by-day -day steps of sanctification. Of Him making me holy. And I'm more holy today than I was last week, than I was last year, than I was ten years ago. I got a whole lot of holiness to go. Are you with me?
So I'm not there, I'm not arrived, I'm not perfect and all that kind of thing, but I am holy. Because I'm choosing the day-by-day way to set my life aside of that. You say, so no more sin for you, huh, Scott? My wife in here today? So, uh, of course there is. Uh, And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that because I am weak. And because even though I try to fight a good battle, if I don't have his power and his strength to do it, I don't get there. And so, case in point, just a few months ago, uh, there were a number of things that were kind of... They felt like they were piling up on me, and uh, I was really getting whacked out about it. I was getting nerved up about it. I was getting stressed. I was getting worried. I was getting fretful. I was not at a point of trust that God's good, that God's sovereign, that God's in control, that God's going to guide, that God's going to provide. I believe all that uh, all the time up here, a lot of the time here, but a few months ago, it was not happening in the heart so much. And so you know what I was doing instead? With all that anxiety churning around inside of me, instead of casting my care on him, I would cast my care upon my candy stash, my snacks, food. Are are you you following what I'm saying? And for a period of, of really like two months, and I'm ashamed to say that, but for like 60 days, I was gorging. I mean, I couldn't stop just putting food in my... the last thing I did before I put my head down on the pillow at night, I'd put food in. First thing I'd do, you know, I'd put food in, and I'd be doing that all day. And there was a level of me that knew what was going on. I was being confessional about that with people that I'm in accountability with. But I was just continuing to do it, even though I say I don't want to. And I had to, within one of my accountability circles, say, okay, here it is. I'm not trusting God. And I'm allowing my desires and therefore, the members of my body to be used as weapons against righteousness. I repent, turn from that, go a different direction. And I give that over. And fresh saving grace. And I don't mean that I was ever lost and I wasn't going to miss heaven. But just the, the fresh saving grace, the renewing grace came upon me. And it wasn't like, no more desires to medicate with food. I still had to make choices. But every time I made a choice, no, I'm not going to do the snack. No, I'm not going to do the treat. No, I'm not going to keep eating. Grace would come upon the decision, and then I would have power to refuse it. Are you following me? So this is what we're talking about. When we say receive Christ and begin to do life with Christ, it's not just like, you know, let me sign the bottom of this life insurance policy, pass hell when I die, all that kind of thing. No, it is a day-by-day dynamic living experience with God. That comes from the fact that I have died and I continue to die to old ways of living. Which is what the picture of baptism is all about. Baptism, when you step into those waters, declares, I've died to this old way. I'm now alive to Christ. And some of you have delayed taking this step, probably for good reasons, Because you haven't known if you're really willing to die to an old life. So that's why we put it this way. If you're coming to a point where you believe that you're ready to take this step, you're going to die to an old way of life, come alive to a new way of life, then mark it. Mark it. Be baptized. So maybe that's a step for some of you. For others of you, maybe you're in a situation like I was a couple of months ago, and you go, you know what, I am not trusting God. 
And because of that, I'm eating like crazy. Because of that, I'm drinking like crazy. Because of that, I'm acting out in sexual ways like crazy. Because of that, I'm spending like crazy. I'm working way too much. You know, whatever the issue is, it comes back to trust. Can I turn to Him and cast my concerns and my anxieties, my future, all that upon Him? Maybe it's something else that I haven't mentioned. But here, I'm going to ask you for the last time, because this is where our prayer is going to be. Do you want God to make us holy? So for everyone that wants God to make us holy, we're going to pray. If that's not exactly where you are, then uh, if you could just be still for a moment while we pray, that'd be great. And just we'll be through with that in just a moment. But here's more good news. God has called us, wooed us, drawn us, invited us to ask Him, make us holy. So if you ever wonder... Will God answer this prayer I'm about to pray? He's going to answer this prayer. He wants us to pray this prayer more than we want to pray this prayer. He is like on the edge of heaven just waiting to bestow grace and power upon all who will pray this prayer. And so, if you'll join me, let's bow. Father, You who hold all power are full of grace and mercy. You who have called us to prayer, we pray. Make us holy. We all agreed and in Jesus' name said, Amen.